Our scripture reading this evening comes from Psalm 99. I invite you to turn there, for we gather this night to hear the word of God, both read and proclaimed, for it is the Lord's day. Psalm 99, this is the word of the living God. Let us give our attention to its reading. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called, they called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our study of his word this night. Gracious Father in heaven, holy God, we come before you tonight once more, having heard your word read and now turning to hear it proclaimed. We pray that you would illumine your word to our minds and to our hearts, that we might hear, that we might believe, that we might receive your word to the furthering of our faith, that we might hear the instruction and the proclamation to the blessing of our souls and our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The foundation of all religion is laid in this great truth. The Lord reigns. God governs the world by his providence, and he governs his church by his grace. He governs both by his Son. This psalm teaches us that we are not only to believe that the Lord lives, but that the Lord reigns. This is the triumph of the church in all ages, that the Lord is King, that he is our King. Indeed, this psalm, Psalm 99, is the seventh of the kingship psalms that begin all the way back in Psalm 93. It is the seventh and final of these psalms, and so these psalms have been something of a crescendo, a building of God's holiness, of God's glory. Psalm 93 emphasizes God's majestic power and highlights his authority over creation and his steadfastness in upholding his kingdom. Psalm 94 is a plea for divine justice and deliverance as the psalmist 
cries out to God for vindication against the wicked and finds solace in the assurance that God is the ultimate judge who will bring justice. Psalm 95 is an invitation to worship and praise the Lord with joy and with gratitude, acknowledging his sovereignty as the creator and shepherd of his people. Psalm 96 calls all of the nations to worship the Lord with joy and reverence, proclaiming his glory, his majesty, and his righteousness as the true and worthy God. Psalm 97 declares the reign of the Lord in his righteousness, his power, and his sovereignty, bringing comfort to the righteous and striking fear in the hearts of the wicked. Psalm 98 exults in joyful praise and celebration of the Lord's salvation, calling all creation to join in singing and shouting with joy for God's faithfulness and righteousness. Psalm 99, our psalm tonight emphasizes the awe-inspiring holiness of God, highlighting His righteous rule his faithfulness to his people and calling us to worship and to exalt him with reverence and praise. Taken together then, these kingship psalms create for us a, a, a view of God, a God that is majestic and holy, who is worthy of our adoration and praise. Indeed, three times in this psalm, we are told that God is holy. It reminds us of Isaiah's vision. You remember it. In Isaiah chapter 6, after, after the prophet has laid out the, the sins of the people, the sins of the nation, it's easy, of course, to look at uh, at the people as a whole, and to see that they were sinful, to see that they were like a, a, a well-kept vine that had produced nothing but stink fruit, the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 5. But then the prophet was taken into the presence of God, and he heard the angels crying out before the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole Earth is full of his glory. You remember, of course, Isaiah's revelation in that moment. He sees the glory of God, his, his, his glory filling the temple. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a I, I, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the glory, the holiness of God. A view of God's holiness brought Isaiah to his proper place, recognizing his own unholiness. Or I can't help but think of John's vision of heaven and the throne of God laid out before us in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And likewise, there John sees that he is in need of redemption because God is holy. 
Our psalm tonight takes us from heaven to earth and then back to heaven again as we ascend holy Mount Zion together. It shows us how we ought to worship, how we ought to approach God in worship. And throughout all, it all, God's holiness is the basis, that is, the basis of God's, of worshiping our God, that He is holy that we are a holy people set apart to worship a holy God. And yet, our holiness is but a creaturely reflection of God's holiness. God's holiness is unique. Moses cries out in Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or as David cry, or, or, or as, as, as sorry, as Samuel, uh, as we read in First Samuel two two, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God is holy, holy, holy. And our psalmist invites us to join together and to understand this and to grow in our appreciation for it. For everything about God is holy. His name, his dwelling place, his word, his actions. This is the ground, we would say, of the third commandment that we do not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And God's holiness is revealed in various ways throughout Psalm 99. We want to give our attention to it, that God's holiness is revealed to us in his reign, is revealed to us in worship, is revealed to us in covenant. At each time, at the end of each of our points, we'll come to that refrain again, holy is he. So look first with me at the beginning of the psalm as we see God's holiness revealed in his reign. It's a statement, right? The Lord reigns, we are told, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. And this speaks of the permanence of his reign. The language here declares God's absolute reign over all creation. It is uncontested. It is uncontestable. As Isaiah cries out in Isaiah 40 and verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. The nations are a drop, like a drop from a bucket. The picture there in Isaiah 40, it makes clear that though the nations might think of themselves as, 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 as something to be, uh, to be reckoned with. Think of Nebuchadnezzar children in Daniel chapter 4. When, Neb- when Nebuchadnezzar looks out upon Babylon and says, Is this not Babylon which I have built? But Nebuchadnezzar would, lo- would learn so quickly that his reign... While it was, it was significant, it was like a drop in the bucket as it was taken from him. The permanence of God's reign is shown here as incontestable. The permanence further is shown where he, in where he is enthroned upon the cherubim. The cherubim, these are those angels, those angelic beings that mark the presence of God. We see them several times in Scripture first. They make their appearance in Genesis chapter 3. As Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, God places the cherubim with the swords protecting the entrance back in. 
signifying God's presence, but signifying God's presence as holy and a place where people could not draw near. The cherubim signified God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple also in the Holy of Holies, though those angels did not place him there, for no place can contain our holy God. As Solomon would acknowledge in 1 Kings 8 when he is praying at the dedication of the temple, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. God's enthronement then is over creation. It is in heaven. It is, it is above the cherubim. And even that does not exhaust the inexhaustible presence of our God or the inexhaustible God. For the cherubim represent, we could say, all created beings superior to man. Remember that man is made a little lower than the angels we read in Psalm, Psalm 8. But God is, 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 is beyond and above even those superior beings such as angels as superior to them as to the people of this earth and as unaffected by conceivable changes in those angelic beings as he is unaffected by the commotions of the earth. God reigns over all. This, of course, is good news. That is the permanence and, and the magnitude of God's reign is good news. We would, we would pause for a moment to realize that. For we live in a world that always seems to be changing, always seems to be going up and down, and, and some people rise to the top, and others seem to sink to the bottom. Our God's reign is not only uncontested and uncontestable, it is ineffected by those changes which means that his purposes can never be thwarted. This, of course, is the truth that Job comes to at the very end of the book. Remember, as Job is struggling with his suffering and with, with where God is in the midst of his suffering and his sorrow, when he demands that God appear and answer to him, and God does appear but doesn't answer to him, but rather asks him questions, what Job comes to realize is that no purpose of God's can be thwarted. And remember that for Job, this was a great hope because he saw everything in his life removed. And yes, of course, we know the end of Job and it's so easy to jump to the end and to say, well, of course, he gets it all back and so it's okay. But, but how could you tell a man who has lost everything, all of his belongings, his possessions, his wealth, his home, but especially of, of, of particular sorrow to him, having lost all of his children, how could you say to him, well, in the end, it'll be okay? No. The suffering that he felt was real. The suffering that he experienced was real. And yet, God's purpose over it all became the anchor of his faith. And it might seem odd to you that an anchor is up and not down if you know anything about ships, which I don't. But I do know that anchors go down. But anchors create a stability such the ship cannot be taken away by the drifts. And here's the point in, in Hebrews chapter 7, or sorry, in chapter 6, in verses 17 to 20, where it says that God, who, who, who cannot lie, has, has made a promise and he has given his word. And it says that Jesus has, has entered into heaven as, as our forerunner. And the forerunner was a ship. 
that would go into the port ahead of the actual ship. And it would bring the anchor. And it would drop the anchor in the harbor so that no matter how much the winds blew, no matter how much the storm, the tempest, whatever, the place of the ship was secure. Well, this is what we get a vision of here as we think of the holiness of our God that is an impermanent, uh, it is a permanent, it is an incontestable reign such that it cannot be affected, which means that since God is our hope, our hope cannot be affected. But look at the place of his reign. He is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Zion was originally the name of the southernmost hill on which the Canaanite fortress city of Jabus was located. It was conquered by King David around 1000 BC and was renamed to Jerusalem. And as the city expanded, the name Zion came to be applied to the whole city. The Lord said that it was the place where he would make his name to dwell. His name is great in Zion. That is among his people. He is exalted over all peoples. That is, he is lifted up. This was the honor of Old Testament Israel. We would say that they had among them the Shekinah glory or the special presence of God attended by the holy angels, the royal palace, the temple, the holy of holies. And so here we see that God's exaltation, the place of his reign is clear, that incontestable, that permanent reign. He is exalted And then we see the praise of his reign in verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The people are called then to praise God. We are called to praise God. When we think of his reign, we are called to praise him because he is great, because he is awesome, because he is holy. Worship that is owed to God is just that. It is owed. All owe God worship. And all in the end, we are told in Philippians chapter 2, we'll acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, the apostle Paul teaches us. And so we see God's holiness is revealed in his reign, that reign that is incontestable, that reign that is permanent, that reign that is the ground of so much hope that we have. It's the anchor, we would say, of our hope. But look further how God's holiness is revealed in worship. And we begin with the fear of the Lord. And this takes us back to the very beginning of the psalm. For the psalmist says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Trembling and quaking are responses of creation to a perfectly holy God. And this is where we, we have to remember how, 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 how fear is to be distinguished. There's... there's uh, um, there's what's often referred to as a kind of servile fear. It's the fear of a servant uh, that he has of his master who, who holds his life in his hand and, and could do him good or ill depending on the day. That is not the kind of fear that we are told to have of our God. No, it's more of that familial fear. Children, it's, 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 when, it's when your dad gets, is, is, is upset and you hear his voice. You know, of course, that he loves you, but you also know what it is to fear. The fear of God is like that. It's not a kind of fear where we sit and, 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 and sort, of, sort of tremble without, without any hope. 
quake without any uh, a- any love, but rather it's a reminder to us of the holiness of God. We fear God because he is holy and we are not. He is great and we are not. He is awesome and perfect and wonderful and we are not those things. And here's the, this is the difficulty is that holiness or holy is a foreign word to us. We, we hear it often, surely. We sing it, of course. But to reflect upon it and to ponder the majesty of the Almighty God who is separate and yet near to us, who has consecrated us to his service, is something that we would do well to spend more time doing. And yet here we see in the context of what we've been talking about, about God's reign, uh, uh, and yet the trembling and the quaking it shows us that God's reign is unaffected by the trembling of the people or the shaking of the earth. There's even more striking poetical figure in the context. If even the cherubim were to tremble or shake or fail, God's reign is confirmed and would not be affected by it. As I said, it's, it's incontestable. It is permanent. In this way, there's a way to think about the holiness of God and our great need. Darcy Sproul writes in his book, The Holiness of God. He says, death reminds us that we are creatures. Yet as fearsome as death is, it is nothing compared with meeting a holy God. When we encounter him, the totality of our creatureliness breaks upon and shatters the myth that we have believed about ourselves. The myth that we are demigods, junior grade deities, who will try to live forever. God is the one who does live forever. And so we see God's reign revealed in worship. Look further with me in verse 4. God's character, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. The fact that God loves justice is clear in the Scriptures in many ways. Throughout the Scriptures, in fact, we know that God cares for justice. In the book of Exodus, the God's love for justice is evident in His intervention on behalf of the oppressed Israelites. Hearing their cry for deliverance from slavery in Egypt, God worked to redeem them, to deliver them, to liberate them, demonstrating His desire for justice and freedom for His people. Another way that God's justice is seen throughout Scripture is His care for widows and orphans. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly expresses His concern for widows and orphans, for those that were the least, were were the most vulnerable members of society. Psalm 68 and verse 5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. In Exodus 22, in the giving of the law, We read, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. God is depicted then as defender and protector of the fatherless and widows, commanding his people to extend justice and compassion. The king in his might loves justice. He establishes equity and executes justice and righteousness among his people in Jacob. Here we want to see is the character of the God we worship. Now this is important because it can often seem as we think about the holiness of God, uh, um, which, which means his, separate, his separateness. 
from creation. That God is not tainted by the wickedness of the world in which we live. And He has redeemed us from the wickedness of this world. And yet, what we tend to struggle with is that this world is full of so much injustice. As we have prayed, and and I do encourage you to pray often for the persecuted church. Our brothers and sisters who live in China, in Eritrea, in North Korea, in a myriad of places in Africa and in the Middle East, wherever you turn, it seems that there are believers being persecuted continuously. And it can be a struggle for us to think that God who we worship, His character is one of might and justice and righteousness and equity. And yet, how does that match with what we see in this world? This again is where we are brought to that refrain that He is holy Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. But I want to say is that when we face those paradoxes where we acknowledge what God, who God is and, 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 and what He demands and we look at the world around us and we see how it doesn't match up, what we are thrown back against again and again and again like Job at the end is to know who God is, that He does what is good and right and holy, and that no purpose of his can be thwarted. One of my seminary professors wrote a book once that, I think the title went something along the lines of when people are big and God is small. What I, wanna, what I want us to understand is that there's a lot of problems in this world. There's a lot of problems in our own lives, in our own, a lot of inconsistencies in our own lives. What we need is a bigger view of God. We need to understand His holiness. And in understanding His holiness, it's not that our problems go away. It's not that we sit back and say, well, I guess all the problems in the world are just fine. No, it means that we recognize like Job that no purpose of His can be thwarted. We recognize like Joseph that though people mean something for evil, God means it for good. In this way then, even in the midst of suffering and sorrow, we come and we worship our God. We exalt Him. We lift up our God. We recognize, and so let me give us some, fill this out a little bit. What does it mean to exalt our God? I know that we hear this children often in church. Let's exalt God. What does it mean? It means to recognize God's sovereignty, acknowledging his absolute sovereignty and supreme authority over all of creation, to recognize that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, to affirm that God is exalted above all earthly powers and rulers, and we submit to his divine rule in our lives. We can summarize that one easily as Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Moreover, exalting God is not just an acknowledgement or recognition of His sovereignty, it is a proclamation of His glory. It involves looking at or, or, or speaking of His glory and His attributes, His holiness, His righteousness, His mighty deeds, making them known. For through our praise and worship, we declare His greatness and make known His character to others. We tell of His faithfulness, His goodness, to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. 
We magnify his name by sharing his works and proclaiming his salvation. We further exalt our God by adoring him in worship, engaging in heartfelt worship individually and corporately through prayer, through praise, through singing, through devotion. We lift high the name of our God and adore him. We exalt him further by reflecting his glory in the world. For he is holy and we also have been set apart. He, of course, is holy, holy, holy. Our holiness is a derived holiness. It is a holiness that is based upon the name of our triune God being placed upon us in our baptism and being set apart from this world to serve the living and true God. And so we are called to reflect his glory in the world dimly as we might do that often. We reflect his glory. And so we see, first, that God's holiness is revealed in his reign. Second, it is revealed in worship. And thirdly, is revealed in covenant. And by covenant, what I mean is, look with me at the beginning here, this third section in verses 6 and 7. He, he speaks of Moses and Aaron and Samuel. He says they were among his priests, and Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. He is not simply reciting those saints of old as though they are just names to kind of throw out, but to remind us that our God has a track record. This is one of those reasons why we do well to recite to ourselves and to our children and to ourselves as though we're reciting to our children continually the faithfulness of our God, of what he did with Adam and Eve, what he did with Abraham, with Noah, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, and go through all of the names all of the stories in the Old Testament get to the point where just a name will recite to your mind all of the details about them, not because you want to win Bible trivia, but rather because you're going to need to remind yourself that God is true, that God is faithful, that God hears and answers prayers because there are so many times, beloved, where it can seem as though God does not. This is the struggle. This is why the songs are given to us. I have a, a habit in our congregation in Michigan of working through one psalm a month, at least, but one psalm a month. Usually it's after a fellowship meal. I will preach a psalm and then we will sing the psalm. We will pray the psalm because I want these words to seep into our hearts and our minds so that they form our own prayers to our God. Why? Because there is something about praying those words that have upheld the saints for thousands of years about praying the words that upheld our savior even through his earthly sufferings we join our voices with moses and aaron and samuel and all the rest who called upon the lord who he heard and he answered and so he hears and he answers us Recalling, of course, God's goodness and faithfulness throughout the generations, it reminds us, of course, about how God is both forgiving and in his holiness, he also is an avenger of wrongdoings. This is the reality of God's holiness. This, by the way, is, I think, one of the reasons why we don't spend a lot of time reflecting upon God's holiness and one of the reasons why we don't spend a lot of time with the Psalms. Because the Psalms remind us of, of, of a God who is holy other. 
a God whose holiness is insurpassable and, and, and that makes us. Like we read Psalm 15, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will come into the presence of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. We read Psalm 1 and we say, blessed is the man who does not walk in the ways of the wicked and sit in the seat of scoffers and so on, but the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And we pretend for just a moment that that's us. But it's not and one of the things that I'm always very clear with when I preach the Psalms or any passage of Scripture is that if it doesn't first point us to Christ, we have misunderstood it. The perfect man of Psalm 1 is Jesus. He is the one who is planted by streams of water, who bears fruit in season. After all, he is the vine and we are the branches, we read in, 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 in John chapter 15. And so when we read these words, our Lord, our God, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. We acknowledge that God's holiness reminds us that we are not holy. How soon we forget that with our first sin, we have forfeited. This is Matthew Henry. I love the way he words it. How soon we forget that with our sin, with our first sin, we have forfeited all rights to the gift of life. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. For the Christian, it is a paradox. We are comforted by the thought of a God drawing near to us, understanding our pain, our struggle, and our fears. We know that nothing happens apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. All things work together for the good of those who love Him. Yet at the same time, it terrifies us, for there is nowhere to flee. He is holy. And as His children, He trains us, He purifies us, from indwelling sin, the indwelling sin that we tend to nurture. So our psalmist closes with these last words, the refrain, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. As I said, we begin in heaven, come back to earth, and then we ascend to heaven again. And it's as though it's there to understand how it is that God, that God uh, uh, um, forgives and how it is that God deals with our sins, that we are invited back up to holy Mount Zion. You see, we are called to come to God's holy mountain. If you're not familiar with this, I, I encourage you to, to spend some time studying it. But, but scripture is a story of mountains. Eden was a mountain in the beginning. This water, why the water flowed out of it. And then you have Mount Moriah, where Abraham brings Isaac to sacrifice him. You have Mount Sinai, also called Mount Hebron. You have, you have the Temple Mount, where David uh, uh, um, offered up the sacrifice at the end of 2 Samuel, uh, the, te- the place where the temple would be built. And then you have the mountain of Calvary. But there's one last mountain. It's holy Mount Zion. I mentioned Psalm 15. Uh, um, I might have actually been quoting Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Again, that is not us, that is Jesus. But here's the good news. In union with Christ, we are brought up that mountain with him. For you have come, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It is God who calls us to worship at his holy mountain, and it is God who makes a way for us to go. It is God who brings us through his Son up holy Mount Zion. This is one of the great truths, and this is something I think is, is so beautiful, especially for the saints in the OPC. I don't mean to exclude other denominations, but so many other denominations have really pretty buildings. And of course, you guys have a wonderful facility, but I remember when Sovereign Grace didn't have such a wonderful facility, and I have church planted with the OPC, and we have met in stuffy little conference rooms, and we've been shuffled around, and yes, we own our own building, but here's the great truth. It doesn't matter what these walls look like. I'm sorry, ladies, I know that it, it does to you, but it doesn't really matter because ultimately, we ascend Holy Mount Zion each and every Lord's Day. Our surroundings melt away, and we gather at the, at, at the feet of our, of our, of our God as we gather with all of the saints who have gone before us who are in glory and the angels who are around the throne crying out, holy, holy, holy. We gather together to worship our God and to glorify his name because he is holy. This is one of the great truths and glorious joys of being a Christian, that our worship is heavenly worship. Struggle as we might to hit the right notes. Struggle as we might to gather a large enough crowd. The truth of the matter is that we join our voices with all those around the world and all of those in glory, singing the praises of our God and worshiping him for he is holy. This is the great truth of this psalm that it proclaims. And the hope that we have is that we can draw near to a holy God not because we are good in ourselves. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the author of Hebrews tells us, because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is why we offer to God worship that is acceptable with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we again thank you for this day and for your word. We thank you, O Lord, that you call us into your presence, sinners though we are. Yes, redeemed, and yet we know, Lord, how far we fall short of your glory. And yet, Lord, you welcome us. You call us into your presence to rejoice and to give you thanks and praise to glory in your holy name. And however imperfectly we do that, O Lord, and however often we struggle and however often the families within the church might struggle on the Lord's day as children bicker on the way to church. Yet, Lord, you call us into your presence and you make a way that we might come. So help us, Lord, each Lord's day morning and evening to set aside this time to ascend holy Mount Zion together, that you might receive praise and glory and that we might rejoice in your goodness, that your holiness might comfort us and help us as we struggle in this world, that in it all we'd be reminded of the faithfulness of our God and the, and, and the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. For we ask this all in his name. Amen.